We're in um, a little series uh, that we've called DNA, and we're just talking a little bit about what kind of church are we? And I want to start by asking you a question that I imagine you may have never been asked in church ever before. Okay. <laughs> our youngest son, Ben, asked me, what's the strangest picture or illustration you've ever used in church before, Dad? And I thought, actually, what I'm using tomorrow might be the strangest picture I've ever used. So this is going to be an exciting moment. Okay, my question for you this morning, have you ever been speed dating? Okay, I'm not asking for a show of hands or a confession or anything like that. I have to confess that I haven't been speed dating. I'm not judging whether you have or haven't. Sarah and I didn't meet speed dating. We met about 27 years ago. We, we've been married as of last Wednesday for 26 years, which means that we got married when we were about eight years old. And... Um, and uh, I'm not going to tell you the story of how we met, but that is another whole story. And if you get to sit near Sarah while having lunch, you need to ask her. And then you need to ask me, and then you need to know which one of us is telling the yeah, truth. Exactly. Okay? Whenever so, I tell the story, he tells me I'm lying, basically. So. Well, just let, we'll just let the Holy Spirit judge which one of us is telling the truth when it comes to me. But as I understand, if you ever go speed dating, you know, you have a room lined up with lots of tables and people kind of, you move around and you have a very limited amount of time to meet someone Get to know them a little bit, ask some questions before you move on to the next person. And during that very short time, you're trying to work out, you know, was there a connection? Could we meet again? You know, or do I never want to ever clap eyes on this person ever again? And you have a very limited time. Now, uh, I'm not comparing choosing a church to be part of to speed dating, but because I don't want to weird anyone out. OK, but. There's, there's a certain similarity that when you visit a church and you're trying to work out, you're trying to find out what this church is like. You're trying to find out, is there a connection here? Tell me a bit about yourself. Do I feel comfortable? All those kind of questions. And <laughs> do I never want to see this church ever again? And that is a very important process when you find a church. The church that I went to in London, I joined in a very odd way that I would not recommend for anybody. I'd basically been to university, had not found a church, therefore had not done very well as a Christian. I discovered that I wasn't really meant to make it on my own. And so I got a, done a bit of a number on me since I'd left university and I'd got my life before him lined up and straight. I'd been abroad working in a school in India. I came back to the UK, I moved to London and I said to God, right, I just need to find a church. Like, I, whatever it is. And I knew of two churches near where I lived. Uh, one was on the 176 bus, and one was on the 185 bus. It wasn't actually on the bus. It was on that route, okay? And I, just, I said to God, which I'm not recommending is the way to do it, but I just said to God, whichever bus comes first, okay? And I got on the 185 bus, and I ended up in the... I was, so godly. Yeah, it wasn't a very spiritual way of making the decision, but it was it's like illustrative of this deep conviction in me is I just need to get in a church. Because I had been in a serious season of kind of, I can't do this on my own. It doesn't work being disconnected from a church. So, but that whole season of finding a church, stepping into a church is really important. And this little teaching series over four weeks, we did the first week last week. It's really about trying to explain what kind of church are we? What are we about? What do we hold dear? What are our convictions? And last week I talked about, if you like, the biblical picture of what a church is, because that's where we want to start. We're not starting from, for those of you who've been around a while, we've only existed for a few months as a church. But we're not starting from the point of, hey, what, how can we do church to be really popular? We're starting from the point of, what do we think God says the church is all about? 
what are the biblical pictures of church? We talked about four pictures. Church is a people. It's a body. The church is a temple of the spirits where God's presence is. And it's an embassy. It's a place of the kingdom, an outpost of the kingdom in the world. So we started there. But this week, if you like, I want to be a little bit more local. And I want to tell you, if you like, some things about us. What are, what are we about? Because you can have different churches who both want to try and be as biblical as possible. But actually, when it comes to expressing that, we'll be quite different. And that's absolutely fine, because I think God uses that to reach different people. So I want to tell you a little bit about some of the things which are important to us, if you like, some of the highlights. Now, there's so many things I could say are important to us, but I've just picked out five things today uh, about what kind of church are we trying to be, what kind of church do we want to be, what kind of church are we aspiring to be. And the first one is this. Number one, we are Bible people. In other words... One of the things that we hold dear is that we believe the Bible is God's word to us. Oh, look at that. As if by magic. This is what 2 Timothy says. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we believe the Bible is God's breathed word to us. Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we believe that the Bible is God's revealed truth, God-breathed, and as such, we believe in universal truth. So the secular West, liberal West, would believe there's no universal truth. In other words, we can, it's subjective truth. What's true for me is different than what's true for you. You can choose what's true for you, is what contemporary secular society will teach us and tell us i can believe something you can believe something different it's both true okay actually we believe in universal truth in other words there is a truth which is true for everybody and the, the bible is god's revealed truth to us now we are aware that the bible is not always an easy book to read okay there are all sorts of different kinds of literature in there and different churches understand different parts of scripture differently, which means that when we come to the Bible, we come humbly with our views. We understand that we may not always read it absolutely correctly, but we come diligently and we ask the question again and again, what do we think the Bible says about this issue? And we try and find the meaning for that. Now, what that means for a church like us is two particular things. It means there are going to be certain things that we believe that the Bible says which are going to be very much at home in the culture we live in. There's going to be things that we hold dear which will harmonise, if you like, will be in step with the city, with Rotterdam, with the culture that we live within. And if you like, there's going to be some kind of like harmonising. So, for example, in the West, in secular culture, there is a strong value Increasingly, particularly amongst the younger generation, of caring for the environment. Environmental issues are very important. Well, that is absolutely in line with Bible principles. Genesis uh, 1 says that we are to have dominion over the world, to steward the world. So Christians should care about the environment as well. right? So we are in step with the world and the culture we live in. It, it blends well. Or, for example, the culture we live in would say that justice is important that justice is important around certain issues. And we would agree also, justice is important. It's an important biblical, it's a biblical value that the world holds dear. The world just doesn't realize it's a biblical value. 
but we will be in step. But it means also, if we're Bible people, there's going to be things about what we believe that it's going to be at odds with the world. So we're going to be in step, but we're also at times going to be at odds. There's going to be some things about what we believe that's going to be at odds, that's not going to blend well. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he's saying it's it's exclusive. There is not the the phrase, all roads lead to God. Jesus is going, it's just not true. It's exclusive. You only get to the Father through me. Now, secular Western liberal culture does not like exclusive claims on truth. They view the Christian message as bigoted, in other words, that you can possibly say that. But Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. You only get to the Father through me. And that exclusive claim on truth is not popular. So when we say that we're Bible people, it means there's going to be some things we believe which are absolutely in harmony and affirming of secular culture, and there's going to be some other things which are at odds with culture. And that means, as a church and as Christians, we live in tension, basically. And what you do with tension is often we want to relieve tension, because tension is not a pleasant place to live. We want to relieve it. We want to find a way of... But actually, we're, we're called to live in tension, therefore, with the world. To love it, serve it, harmonize with it where we can, but also at times to be at odds with it and challenge it and be different to it. So we live in some kind of tension. Let me tell you how that plays out in our kind of church. It means that we can say both at the same time, everyone is welcome, come as you are. So the gospel is for everybody. Church is for everybody. Jesus says, anyone's thirsty, you can come. Everybody is invited. Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. Everybody needs Jesus. In fact, the gospel is very clear. We can't fix ourselves to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and he fixes us. So we say to everybody, come as you are. And yet the gospel is also very clear. We don't stay as we are. The gospel is clear. Jesus helps, forgives, challenges, changes people. People repent around Jesus. They leave an old life to follow him. Jesus comes in both grace and in truth. So John 8, Jesus intervenes in the, in the, in the stoning and the condemning and the punishment of a woman who's in, in adultery. She's with another man who's not her husband. They are, the, the kind of Jewish leaders are about to kill her. Everyone's picked up their stones and Jesus intervenes and says in John 8, If you're without sin, you can throw the first stone. (laughs) Silence in the room. Stones start to drop. And then Jesus says these remarkable words. Do they condemn you? They've all left. So he says, neither do I condemn. This is a woman caught in adultery. He says, neither do I condemn you. But then he says, go and leave, leave your sinful life. So come as you are, but you don't stay as we are. There's an inherent tension in that as Christians and as a church. But we're Bible people, which means that we absolutely affirm what's good about the culture we live in. We celebrate that. We want to bless the city, but we also stand in tension with some things as well. Second thing, we believe in the presence of God. In other words, we are presence people. We believe God is here. So I was saying the other uh, week... um, in one of our meetings, when I was about 12 years old, something remarkable began to happen in the, in the kind of town that I grew up in. I grew up in a little town called Bishop Stortford. Anybody else been to Bishop Stortford? You have. Everyone's been to Bishop Stortford. Amazing. I thought everyone's going, no, it's just north of London. Anybody flown oh, sorry, into... I've, I've been. Sarah has been there. She's tried to block it out of her mind, though, clearly. Anybody flown into Stansted Airport? 
That's another very exciting place. That's near where I grew up. Story. Well, you've been near where I grew up. Okay. Well, in that place, when I was about 12 years old, um, all I can say is that um, amongst the young people uh, in the town, particularly the young people who were going to some of the churches, God started to do something fairly remarkable. And it kicked off, I think, with a bunch of people praying over years and years and years. And then one Saturday night, the story is I wasn't there, I was too young. Uh, but one Saturday night, they used to have these gatherings of young people from all the different churches, used to get together, kind of do a meeting in someone's house on a Saturday night, and they called it the squash. And one Saturday night is they were all gathered in someone's garden just for one of these very normal kind of meetings, nothing very remarkable going on. And suddenly, I think as what I understand is God shows up in a way that they had not expected. People start to cry, people start to repent, people start to pray. These are like teenagers, and this is just happening spontaneously. And that kind of carried on. And to, then what happened was they used to meet on a Sunday night. Every Sunday night, different teenagers used to gather in a house in the town, people we knew, till they got, I think in the end, they had a little lounge, they had about 60, 70, 80 young people coming every Sunday night to pray, just spontaneously. It wasn't adults leading this, it was teenagers, people starting to get healed. My brothers used to go to that, I got into that as well. And that was kind of like where I became a Christian. I was born into an experience of people anticipating that God was in the room. People started to get prayed for, people started to get healed, like remarkable healings. I remember one girl coming to our house, one of my brother's friends, she was about 16, she'd broken her toe. A bunch of them gathered in my brother's bedroom, they prayed for her, and her toe just went ah, like straight back, like that. Now, I, there was things that happened just in that season that I've never happened, seen since in quite the same way. But the thing that really shifted for everybody was, I think God's here. Not just conceptually, because <laughs> if you ask most people who are Christians, do you think God's here? They would all go, yeah, yeah, I think God's here. But actually an expectation. No, I think he's here, here. <laughs> Not just like, it's a nice idea, but like, he's here. And Jesus says, doesn't he, just two or three of you, just two or three gathered, I'm there. I don't think he's just saying conceptually. Philosophically, it's a nice idea to think God might be here. He's saying, I want you to believe, I want you to be people who believe I am here. And God appears to respond to faith that sense of, no, I think he's here. So we're presence people that we believe is here. And you read through the New Testament again and again and again. All, pretty much all the epistles and all the writings keep pointing back to this idea that the church, the life of the church, the life of the believer focuses on, is the, the life is, feeds on, is born out of an expectation and an experience that, the, that God is here, that the Spirit is here, the life of the Spirit is the, the life by which we live as a Christian. So Paul keeps saying, you know, be filled, go on being filled with the Spirit. And he's not just talking to individuals, he's talking to churches. The churches should be filled with the Spirit. You read in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, it's the lists of the gifts of the Spirit. I don't think they're supposed to be exclusive lists. I think they're examples of lists of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, now to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. That means to everyone, the Spirit is given and gifts are given. In other words, there's something supernatural that's happening in the lives of Christians and in the lives of the church. God given, God breathes, to each one given. So we're people who believe that God's here. And we're going to lean into that. And we're going to go after that. 
And we're going to pray for that. Because if God's not here, we're just having a nice club together who has breakfast and a bit of lunch sometimes. Okay? If that, if that's, but but we're, not, we're not here for that. We're here because God, we're going after you. We think you have something for us. So we're presence people. Here's the third one. We are people people. <laughs> we're people people. I don't mean by that we're raving extroverts, all of us. Some of you are raving extroverts. Some of us are more introverted. Do you want to have a guess which one I am? No, you're not sure. Yeah, I'm more introverted, actually, which doesn't mean I don't like people. It means that I tend to kind of like, I kind of like energize sometimes by withdrawing a little bit rather than stepping into everything a little bit. But we're people, people. In other words, what that means to, is that people matter to us. People matter to God, and therefore people matter to us. So in Mark 12, when a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, can you tell us what the law says? Summarize the law for us. Like, take all the commandments and just sum it up. And Jesus goes, okay, good question. The most important one, Jesus says, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In other words, if you want to summarize the Lord, Jesus goes, love God, put God first, orientate your life around him, and then love the people that he loves. That's what it's about. So spiritual maturity looks like this. It doesn't look like how big your Bible is, how many prayer meetings you get to, how many churches. It looks like this. Are you orbiting your life more around Jesus and are you loving people more? Because that's what spiritual maturity looks like. So that's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people who see people, hear them. Jesus saw people that no one else saw. We want to be people who hear people, value people, encourage, strengthen, challenge, care about people. We're people people. I don't know if you've ever moved somewhere where you just didn't know anybody. I moved to university when I was 18 years old. That's the first time I'd ever moved away from home. I didn't know anyone. And it was quite a shock to the system to move somewhere that I knew no one. Like, I was like, oh, man. And I had three weeks of feeling severely lonely. I mean, there are a lot of lonely people in this city, right, who've come from all over the world. And I remember three weeks in walking through the student union and the first time someone called my name. It, it wasn't like, oi, come back and pay for your coffee. It was like literally someone called my name. And I remember like hearing it. It was like, someone knows who I am. I mean, it really had an impact on me. Someone has seen me. Someone knows my name. Someone's called out to me. And it really struck me how powerful it was. Well, we want to be people who see people, hear people, value people. Because we want people in the church to grow and flourish. But it also means we want people in the city who are not in the room to grow and flourish. There's a great passage in Jeremiah 29. This is a pretty powerful uh, passage. Uh, It says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, this is a prophetic picture. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. These are people who are living in exile. So in other words, they're not at home. So you could say this is like Christians living in the world. Okay? This is what he says about living in in Babylon. Because they're longing to get back. But this is what God says to them about living in exile. So it says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives to your sons, give your daughters in marriage, so that they may too have sons and daughters Increase in number there and do not decrease. Ask 
sorry, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because it prospers. You too will prosper. In other words, there was this burden on the people of Israel in exile in the city. Seek the prosperity of the city. Love the city. So part of the call on us is not just to love people in the room, but it's to love the city and to seek the prosperity of the city. So in this community or in Rotterdam, we are to seek the prosperity of the city. Now, if you know the passage and you read on, there's also a warning in there where it says, don't listen to the prophets or the diviners who are amongst you, who are going to basically spread a false message amongst you. So don't absorb the values of the city, right? Don't absorb the values, but live in the city and be a blessing to the city. So we want to be people, people. We want to be a church. So we're not here to build a machine. We're here to build a church where people feel genuinely seen, cared for, loved. But we also want to love the city, but not absorb all the values of the city. Here's the fourth one. There's only two. Two more. We are a diverse people. We're not a British church. We're not a Dutch church. We're not any particular nationality church. We recognize we live in a very diverse city, which personally I really love. Over half the population in Rotterdam, or about half, are non-Dutch. But we also live, recognize that we live in the Netherlands. So we are a diverse city made up of people from all over the world in the Netherlands, in the Western world. So we're a diverse people in a Western Dutch context. Well, what does that mean for us? A few things. It means this. It means we want to acknowledge diversity. That there are different cultural worldviews amongst us which means that we have to work hard both to encourage the breadth of diversity in our leadership, in our style, in our culture, in our approach, in our food, but not just our food, okay? Diversity needs to be expressed in all sorts of ways within a church, not just in ways that can feel a little bit tokenistic. So it's not that just eating diverse food is tokenistic at all, but if that's all it ever was, it would be. So diversity is far broader than that and far deeper than that. In practice, it means we need to ask questions of each other. So <laughs> Sarah and I are forever asking questions of, hey, how do you view this? What do you think about this? Tell me what it would be like for you and for others of you as well. Listen to each other, learn from each other, realize and recognize that my cultural worldview is not the only cultural worldview. Okay? It means that we all need to learn that our cultural backgrounds have certain kingdom strengths and certain weaknesses. Okay, some things we've grown up with are more in line with the gospel than other things. So let me give you an example as someone who's British. I grew up, as you know, in the UK. Britain has a long history of being an empire. Okay? In other words, it has a legacy of building wealth off other countries in the world. Okay? Most of that legacy is not good, therefore. And there is a legacy, particularly amongst white British people, not exclusively, but of therefore assuming... Just because it's done in Britain, everybody does it like this. It's a certain superiority, which is, in some senses, we're totally unconscious of. But it's built into the legacy of my nation because that's my history. And I have imbibed it into me as well. And it's very important for British people to realize that's true. Okay? So that's something which is out of step with the gospel and the kingdom. It's, there's a certain arrogance about that. And actually, therefore, I need to be humble therefore, and realise that not everybody sees the world like British people do. If you, t- if you look at a map in Britain, Britain is in the centre of the map. 
I don't know if it's the same in every other country, but literally, you, you see a map of the world, look, there's that little country called Britain and it's right in the middle. Okay, that's how we build our maps, because we assume, well, the world orbits around England, right? Which is because of our history, and it's not a good thing. Okay? London is a very rich city because of lots of dark pasts, basically built off the rich of the slave trade, a lot of it. Okay, so there has to be an acknowledgement that actually there are aspects of our cultural background which are not good that I've somehow imbibed as well into my cultural worldview. But there are other aspects of British culture which are far more in line with kingdom values. Okay? The importance of fairness and justice is an important which would be a very British cultural world. That's more in line. So there are aspects of my culture which is out of step with the gospel and some aspects of my culture which is more in line. And that is true of every culture represented in the room. And so sometimes we have to step out of our culture and go, what of my cultural background is a real kingdom value and what is not? Okay, that's one of the things as a diverse church we have to grapple with. It means as a diverse church we're going to pray for one another and we will pray for issues in the world which are represented in the room which may not be an issue represented for my people or my background, but it might be something that's representing yours. So we're going to own and pray for things around the world. We'll do what Paul says in Romans 12, rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. It also means, I think, as an international diverse church, that we're going to keep the main things the main things. Okay? What I mean by that is, we, Sarah and I have a good friend who's a well-known, kind of internationally well-known Bible teacher. And he talks about that in the Bible, and theologically, there are things that are written in ink, uh, sorry, in blood, things that are written in ink, and things that are written in pencil. In other words, there are certain biblical convictions which you, you're going to die for. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is fully man, fully God. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died, rose again, ascended. Okay. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Those are written in blood. Okay? And we will contend for those truths together. They're written in blood. But there are other things that are written in ink. They might be important to us. But we recognize different backgrounds, different worldviews. We might have, so for example, how leadership works or how governance in the church works. We will have some strong convictions that we need to be able to articulate, but they're written, they're important but they're not written in blood. They're written in ink. We recognize different churches maybe do this differently. We need to give a, a rationale for why we would approach this way, but they're not as important as Jesus is Lord, okay? They're written in ink. And then there might be other things more written in pencil. Things like, hey, we think groups are really important. Community life is super important, but we might change that. We might change our view on how to do that, when to do that, because they're written in pencil. And we're, we're gonna keep the main things the main things. Okay, we're going to keep the things written in blood, the things written in blood. Other things we recognize, hey, we see it differently. Maybe we need to think about that. Maybe that, we need to question that. But there are certain things that are written in blood. Now, I suspect you might be going, well, what are the things that are written in blood for you? But I haven't got time to go in for that. But just be aware that in an international diverse setting, we're going to see some things a little different. But we keep the main things the main things. Where are the things we kind of go, we all agree on that. That's written in blood. Lastly, this. We are a people of hope. Hope is a beautiful word, I think. It's such a nice word that Sarah and I called our daughter, her middle name is Hope. Indiana Hope Varley. To feel hopeless, if you've ever been in that situation, is a pretty awful experience. When literally hope is ebbing away 
and there's nothing you can do to get it back. That is a pretty horrible place to be. But we're a people of hope, which means that we truly believe the gospel is good news. So when the birth of Jesus is announced, the angels turn up, and they are literally singing and dancing. They're saying, no, 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 this is great news. There's great news. And the world often doesn't think of faith or Christianity as great news. It thinks of uh, people who news that, or faith which is restrictive, faith which is judgmental, views which can be a bit bigoted. God is here to steal my fun, that kind of view. To restrict me and say I can't do all the fun stuff I want to do. But actually Jesus says in John 10, I have come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. John 10.10. In other words, Jesus offers a life of deep contentment and soul satisfaction of, in other words, of human flourishing, a God life. And this is the deep human sense of flourishing and satisfaction that the world is chasing after and looking for in all sorts of different places. What that means is we really believe that Jesus is the answer to the world. And it means that when the Bible, when God says there are boundaries for us, there are things that are off limits for us. They are off limits for us because they're not good for us. They're going to harm us. They're going to rob us of joy. They're going to rob us. It's not because God wants to rob us of joy. Actually, he wants to keep us from harm. So if, if you ever have, if you've ever had small children or you look after people's children, there are moments you kind of go, no, no, don't touch that. Don't stick your hand in the fire. No, 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 don't put your hand over the kettles. It's, you know, don't touch that. Don't eat that. That's poison, you know, because it's going to harm you. We don't say that to our kids because we want to rob them of joy. We say it to them because we want to keep them safe and we want to keep them healthy. And so if there are boundaries on us as Christians, it's because God said, no, no, those boundaries are not safe for you. It's to keep us joyful and full of hope and healthy. So we are people that think, believe that the gospel is a message of hope, of joy. In other words, there is freedom, there's healing, there's forgiveness. It's the message of being able to come home, of finding hope. That God is not for you, is not against you, he's for you. God wants to bring freedom to your life. That the soul satisfaction that you crave is found in him. And God has plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Hebrews 6 says this. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I'm going to read that again. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So that's the kind of people we are. There's so much more I can say, but that's the kind of people we are. Jesus is the head of the church. This is his church. He's moving amongst us. We want to get in line with what he has for us. And we are beginning to, if you like, build this thing together. But these are the kind of people we are. And this is the kind of thing we want to go after. We want to be Bible people, presence people. We want to be people people. We want to be diverse people. And we want to be people of hope. So I'd love us just to stand and we're just going to pray together and Jed's going to